In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we, get, we once again gather in your name to, to learn more about what you have revealed about yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us as we talk about our Heavenly Father. We ask this through Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, so reminder from two weeks ago, we talked about what does it you know, to mean to say that we believe in one God, the Father. And now tonight we're going to finish out that sentence you know, that we say, I believe in one God, the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And so tonight we're going to talk about what, is, what does that part mean? What does it mean to say that God is almighty, that he is creator, and that he has created heaven and earth? And we start with this, this first, first phrase, the almighty. You know, we talk about God that he's, he's almighty. And, you know, we spell it A-L mighty. But we really mean it like A-L-L mighty. That he is, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He, there's, there's no limit to God. No limit to his power outside of him. Nothing outside of him can constrict him. You know, that, that he's got this great power because he's created all the universe. And so when we talk about his, his power, the, the catechism uses three words to describe it. Universal, loving, and mysterious. And so we say that God's power, his might, is universal. And that really just means that he can do whatever he wills. If he wills it, it can be done. That there is nothing in heaven and earth that can limit him. There is nothing inside him that can limit him. He, has, he is all-powerful. And if he does not will it, it does not happen. If he does will it, it does. And so the reason for this is because he created everything. Everything is existence because of him. He was from eternity, how they put it, from eternity into eternity. He was before anything existed for eternity and will be after everything that exists for eternity. And so there's no limits to his power. Well, this is when sometimes people, especially atheists, will, will say something like, well, does that mean God can create a rock that he can't lift? And, it's, and the problem with that question is it's actually a foolish question. Because all of creation was created by God. It's all subject to him. It all exists because of him. The very question of a rock that, God, that is too heavy for God to lift is foolishness because God is not bound by the laws of the universe. He created them. He's not bound by them. And of course, by the very question of a rock too heavy for God to lift, that implies things like mass and gravity. Now I mean mass as in, you know, the object has an object has mass, not mass as in the, the mass, the celebration of the mass we just had. And, of course, gravity is what makes something heavy. Gravity is the interaction of two objects against each other, and that more massive an object is, the more weight it has because of gravity. And, of course, we can see that in the universe where an object here on Earth that weighs 100 pounds would only weigh about 17 pounds on the moon because the moon is one-sixth Earth's gravity. So for those of us who are 
rapidly approaching 300 pounds, <clears throat> excuse me, we'd only weigh 50 pounds on the moon. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. I think I could handle that. Um, you know, it, it, so an, a rock that you could not pick up here on Earth because it was 100, 200 pounds could be very easily picked up on the moon. That's why you saw those videos of the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts, when they're on the moon, and they're jumping and they're picking up things that you know were much heavier than they appear because that, the gravity was less on the moon. Well, that doesn't matter to God. That Even that gravity here on Earth or the gravity in the sun or around the sun or the gravity around you know, a black hole or whatever, all of that is irrelevant to God. Because he's not bound by it. So even if he made a rock as large as the entire universe, all of creation, was one massive rock, he's not bound by that, by that weight. So that question of, is there a limit to God because of a rock? No, that's not a limit on God. That's a limit on our imagination. And it's, it's really meant as kind of a gotcha question by people who are especially atheists. But he can do anything he wills. If he willed to turn all of the universe into that one massive rock, he could. He doesn't will to do it, so he didn't. Instead, he willed it that he created the universe in such a way as he did. And that goes into the second point, is that God's power is loving. He uses his might, his power, as a loving father should. He does not abuse us with his power. He does not force us with his power. He encourages us. And he uses that power to show his love for us. He used that power to create us. He uses that power to keep us in existence. And we can especially see that might, that power, in the mercy that he shows us in the forgiveness of sins. He wipes away our sins. They're gone. When we ask for that forgiveness through the sacrament of confession. And that's part of his power to restore that that love to us to continue to give us that love that mercy and this power that god uses is not arbitrary it's not something that says well i like you so i'm going to give you my my love but i don't like you so i'm not going to do that to you no he gives it to all of us you know the catechism in in chapter 271 says or paragraph 271 says in God, pow <coughs> excuse me, power, essence, will, intellect, wisdom, and justice are identical. All these things are identical in God. All of them work together. And so his love and his justice, his power, all of it is the same. It's all within God. And so he uses his power out of love for us. And then third of all, his power is Mysterious. How he uses his power and how the power that he has is a mystery to us. And what he permits and what he doesn't is a mystery to us. And this is really where the question of evil first arises. Now, next week we will talk even more in depth about evil. But this is where the question of evil first arises. And it might seem that God permitting evil to occur shows that he doesn't have the power to overcome that evil, to prevent that evil. And that's not the case. But a lot of times people look at the evil that is 
that happens in the world, the evil that happens you know, between others, the evil that happens especially with nature, the natural disasters and things like that, that we call evil, that hurt people, that kill people. You know, we might ask, how can God permit this? How can God permit all this if he was truly good? And this isn't a trite question. There are people that it is a very serious question for them. It causes them to lose their faith and trust in God because they can't get a good answer for why he allows it to happen. And yet... As part of this mystery of why God allows evil to occur, he allowed his son to undergo the worst evil possible. He died on the cross. He sent his son as one of us, took on, his son took on human flesh and allowed his son to die on the cross for us. I mean, there is that... Our Lord even mentions in that prayer of, you know, may this chalice pass from me, this chalice of evil, this chalice of suffering. Yet our Lord took it on, and through that suffering and death, through that great evil, our Lord conquered death. I love that image in the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, where our Lord dies on the cross, and then you see the, the character of Satan in this desolation, screaming, knowing that he had lost, knowing that our Lord had won, knowing that evil was conquered. That's what happened when our Lord died on the cross. And so we've got the verse that I was reminded, it wasn't in the catechism, but it's a verse that I was reminded, was from 1 Corinthians 15.55. Oh, death, where is your victory Oh, death, where is your sting? The victory of death was snatched. The sting of death was blunted by our Lord's death on the cross. And so because of how mysterious God's power is, it is only through our faith, which remember we talk about faith being an obedience to God, and a submission to God, submission to what he has revealed to us, it is only through that obedience, through that submission, that we can truly understand the mystery of God's power. And to help us understand this mystery, we have the example of Our Lady. The Blessed Virgin Mary is truly the example of what that submission, that obedience to God's will, will help her understand the power of God. Because, of course, as it says in Luke 1.37, Nothing will be impossible with God. She understood in her faith that whatever God promised would happen, that he had the power to do it. Even if we didn't understand it, he had the power to do it. And part of that power we see in the fact that God is the creator. Now we're moving on to the next part of this. We talked about his being almighty that he is also the creator. And when God created the heavens and the earth, in the very beginning of creation, the story of salvation began. The story of salvation began literally in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. 
That is where our salvation came from. From that very first moment. Now, that, that might seem obvious. Well, of course, you know, if you're going to start with the story of salvation, you've got to start with everything being created to be saved. But that was God's plan. God's plan, again, in his mysterious power and his mysterious wisdom, was that the, what he was creating at that time would lead to a new creation through Christ. He created the world. He created the heavens and the earth. So that would lead to our Lord, the salvation that our Lord brought us. Now, when we look at creation, a lot of time, you know, one thing that we humans do that no other beings do, no other creatures, and when I talk about creatures in this context, I'm not talking about how we commonly use creatures as in animals, maybe plants, but definitely animals. You know, we talk about Dogs and cats and cows and deer and bear and humans as creatures. But we don't talk usually about rocks or the sun or the moon. All these things are creatures. But of all creatures, we are the only ones that ask the question, where do we come from and where are we going? Sometimes we think dogs are smart. Some dogs like Ben are, are smarter than others. But dogs do not look at the stars and go, how did I get here? Where did I come from? No, if they're sitting there looking at the stars, they're going, bird. Or, I smell food. Or something to chase. You know, dogs don't ask those questions. Animals don't ask those questions. Plants don't ask those questions. Rocks don't ask those questions. We do. We ask those metaphysical questions of where did we come from and where are we going? What, is our, what are we destined to do? And this question has been asked throughout human history. From the earliest humans, we have asked, where did we come from? And that has led some of the greatest scientific research that has ever happened has been trying to answer that question. And we talked about a couple weeks ago about the Big Bang Theory, how it was a Catholic priest who came up with it. Well, it, it was basically answering that question. How did the universe become what it is today? Where did we come from? How did we come to be on this earth? How did this earth get created? How did this solar system get created? How, you know, on and on and on, all the way back. In fact... Uh, not that long ago, they launched the, uh, was it the James Webb Telescope into outer space. Its purpose is to look further back from where we came from. So all these scientific studies and all, these re all this research and all this time and effort, have all, have, a lot of it has come from this question. Where do we come from? But we have also asked that question in a philosophical way, in a, a metaphysical way, in a way of trying to understand logically, trying to, under, to get meaning out of our lives. As the Catechism says in uh, paragraph 284, is the universe governed by chance, blind fate, anonymous necessity, or by a transcendent, intelligent good and being called God? And if the world does come from God's wisdom and goodness, why is there evil? Where does it come from? Who is responsible for it? Is there any liberation from it? These are questions that we have asked as human beings for centuries, for millennia. 
And in many ways, we're not any closer to a lot of them, except what has been revealed through Christ, what has been revealed through the scriptures, and so on. Now, there are different understandings that have arisen to answer these questions than what has been revealed through Christ. You know, some of the earliest civilizations developed, you know, the pantheisms, the, the, the multiple gods, the gods of the earth and the gods of the sky. And we I talked about all this before. You know, all these different gods of different purposes and reasons and everything. There's philosophies and even religions that are, they're dualist. Dual as in two, you know, either or. You know, either light and dark, yin and yang, good and bad. Light side, dark side, Sith, Jedi. Had to throw in the Star Wars quote, sorry. <laughs> you know, there's all these different dueling back and forth. There's, I've talked about it before, but dual, de, excuse me, deism. Deism, where God, there is a God, but he's not really a personal God. He's not really in our life. He's not really Christian. He's not really Buddhist. He's not really Jewish. Or, you know, he's just, there's a God. And he created the universe, and like a watchmaker, wound it up and walked away. You know, that the universe just runs on its own because of all the laws. And then, of course, there are those who, they try to find meaning of creation only in the material world. There's nothing beyond the material world, you know, materialism. And I don't mean materialism is, is, you know, having to have stuff. I mean that the only thing that exists in the universe, in the heavens and the earth, is the material stuff of the earth, of, the, of creation. And so we try to find meaning out of that. There's nothing more transcendent than that. Now, this is the, where we, we talked about in the very first class how we reason that God exists. This is the realm we're working at, where we're asking this question of how did we get here? What is our purpose in life? Where are we going? That's where we, we, we reason that's God's, that God exists just by looking at the world around us. And that's also where God revealed to us that there is more than what we can see in the world. There is a heaven. There is a spiritual life. There is a God who created us. And here's who he is. And so... When we look to the Bible to help us answer this question, we see the, the first three chapters of Genesis, the first three chapters of the Bible, that show us the truth of creation. Now, I want to make a bit of caveat here. I'm not saying that the first three books of the Bible are literal scientific text. There are groups out there that do that. There are Catholics out there that do that. And the more we have understood the universe, the more we understand that it isn't a literal six 24-hour days that God created the universe. He didn't, you know, the Adam and Eve and all that. It's more of an, an, an allegory that show us something deeper. What we see in these first three chapters, as the Catechism says in 289, its origin and its end in God, its order and goodness, the vocation of man, and finally the drama of sin and the hope of salvation. That is what we see in those first three chapters of Genesis. They show us all these things. They show us the creation of the world, that God did create the universe all the way to the Big Bang and before. 
they show us that we have fallen. And this is something we will talk about more next week. About what that means to say that there has been a fall into sin. That'll be one of the focuses for next week. And then there is a promise of salvation. That after Adam and Eve fell, God promised him that there would be a Savior sent to overcome that fall. Which, of course, is our Lord. So, those three chapters are so full of beautiful message from God. Just not a literal one. You know, just not a literal Bible. Or literal, again, little, literal textbook of how creation was made. It's not like there's an angel standing up there with a, you know, a camera recording it and writing it down. But it does tell us that God, all the, the story of creation. And one thing it tells us is that all of creation was created by the Father through the spoken word of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just God the Father creating everything. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in the work of creation by their particular way. Remember when I had the triangle up on this chalkboard or this whiteboard that I said the three were united as one but three distinct persons who each have a work that they do within the Trinity, a distinct work within the Trinity. Well, that is how creation worked as well. You had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each doing their distinct role within creation, but all working together as one God, as a Trinity. And all of creation was ultimately created for the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. The world exists. The stars exist. The universe exists. This is the, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the poem about, or the, was it St. Francis about, you know, uh, the heavens are telling the glory of God. You know that song. You know the song. I, I'm blanking on the name of it, but you know, sing to the glory of the Lord. But all of creation is to the glory of God. Now, this is not... To give God more glory, but to share in that glory. To share in that love of God. I, again, I've said this before, that he created the heavens and the earth so that we might share in his love. We might be adopted as his children. That's why he created all of this. For us. Pretty incredible to think about. You know, he didn't create it because, oh, I'm bored today. No, he created it because God is love, truly, and he wanted to share that love with us. And so we were made to receive his grace through his divine will. And all of creation were created to help us share in that. And all of this creation, God didn't just pick up stuff and start working on it. You know, we, we say that God created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. And it was kind of funny. A few years ago, I can't remember, probably 10 years ago, maybe not even that long, there were some scientists who, they're, they're, they're working with some of the quantum theories, the theories of the underpinnings of the universe below atoms, below you know, electrons and all that stuff, that there's this quantum Fog? I can't remember the exact word that they would use. But before the Big Bang, 
there was a quantum vacuum. <coughs> that there was this, this quantum flux. I mean, it, I, I don't totally understand it, but the idea is there was this quantum vacuum in existence before the Big Bang. And what they said was, well, God didn't create it out of nothing because this quantum vacuum eventually becomes material. It eventually becomes atoms and singularities and things like that. And that's what created the universe. This quantum vacuum coalesced into the singularity, the object that exploded in the Big Bang. And scientists who are Christians, especially Catholics, by the way, did you know we have a Vatican astron a, a, a observatory, both in Rome and in, in Arizona? There are actual scientists who are on the Vatican payroll to discuss issues like this. And they came out and said, no, you're, you're not understanding. When we say nothing, we mean there wasn't even a quantum vacuum. There was, this was before. God created the quantum vacuum to create the Big Bang. And although scientists kind of did, you know, that, that shock look like, oh, oops. You know, <laughs> you ever seen that meme where it's kind of like, you know, there it's like, no, when we say nothing, we mean nothing. God made it out of nothing. There was nothing there for God to use, to create. He created everything that exists. And because he created everything, and because he keeps everything in existence, he can work his miracles. The miracles God work, God works, are because creation is in submission to him. And he can heal someone if it is his divine will. He can allow Our Lady to appear to three children in Fatima, Portugal in 1914, I believe it was. Because all creation is subject to his will. And he created, all of it exists because of him. That's why we call it creation. It was created. It didn't just snap into existence because the quantum vacuum suddenly decided to move. You know? So, when he created everything, oh, there we go, when he put, created everything, he was able to put in place all the laws and rules that govern the universe. The universe is ordered because God made it that way. He wanted it to have the rules, you know, the laws of gravity and uh, thermodynamics and all these laws and all these rules that we studied in science class in high school and college. All of them came into existence because God created them. He wanted them. And because of that, the universe and those laws and those rules are good. Anything created by God is good, which includes us, by the way. We are good because we are created by God. And so is the universe and all the laws and all the rules that govern it and everything that follows those laws and rules. And so, everything that's created, he created because he, will, he wills it, and he's beyond it, but because he wills it, he also keeps it in existence. It was, I'd once heard it said that if, if God forgot you for just the blink of an eye, you wouldn't exist. He is keeping us constantly in existence, which means he is constantly keeping us in his thoughts. 
Again, God can do that. He's not like us. We're, we're limited and flighty in our thoughts. God keeps all of creation in his will, in his thoughts. He desires for all of us to exist and desires to be present to it. This is the error of that watchmaker God, that God that creates the watch and starts it up and sells it and never sees it again. That's not the God that we have. We have a God who loves us, who wants to be present to us, who wants us to be present to him as well. And so we get into what we call divine providence, which is God's will, which is how God wills creation. And we recognize that creation is not perfect. We have things like the law of inertia that eventually creation will wind down. And that's part of the reason why there was this, this uh, idea of the clockmaker God. Because like a clock, you know, the old school clocks, not you know, the modern digital ones, but the old school ones where you actually had to go and wind it once in a while. Like actually the one we've got upstairs in the sacristy. I, I got to get that thing cranked up and going again because I love those old clocks. But if you don't wind that thing enough times, it'll wind down. The universe will do that. Eventually, the universe will eventually wind down. So the creation is not perfect. But God is guiding creation to perfection. Because ultimately, God wants us to live in a perfect heavens and a perfect earth. And he wants us to be perfect in heaven. He wants us to be guided to that perfection. And so that's why we are called to trust in his plan for creation. That's why we are called to trust in what he wants for our lives. And that's also why he gave us responsibility over creation. You know, why we are able to shape the world around us, why we're able to use the world around us, why we're able to, you know, use the plants and the animals for our good. He gave us responsibility over creation to help that we might participate in guiding creation to be perfection through cooperating in his plan you know and this is why it's so important that we don't abuse our universe we don't abuse creation you know i'm not going to go into you know radical environmentalism that we need to shut down the dams and shut down the cars no no i'm not going to go that far but we do need to be careful with how we use the universe how we use creation, how we use the world, not abuse it. You know, and so uh, while I have no problem driving a gas-powered car, I look forward to the day when we can do things like dependable, reliable electric cars, for example. That technology eventually getting there where we can depend on it as much as we use our, our gas cars. We don't think about our gas cars. Most of us, as long as we keep fuel in it, we turn the key, it fires up. But we should be moving away from them because they do hurt the, the environment in one way or the other. But again, that's, that's not to say that we have to do that now, but we, it, we should be working towards better, cleaner ways of using our world. Same thing with, with, with farming. You know, farmers have learned how to better use the ground, how to better rotate their crops and not, you know, not lose the topsoil like you, you saw back in the, the Dust Bowl, especially like in Oklahoma and places like that. That's part of learning how to use creation better, 
how to participate in God's plan. You know, we don't go overkill. We don't go to the point where we start hurting ourselves and start hurting creation because of it. But we still should be open to better ways to use our world and better ways to respect our world. Now, with this divine providence, because creation is imperfect, this is where we come into the question of evil. And the question that the Catechism asks, which I said is one that will trip up people who believe, uh, paragraph 309, if God the Father Almighty, the creator of the ordered and good world, cares for all his creatures, why does evil exist? If God is good, if he loves us and wants what's good for us, why does he permit evil? And you know, that the sad part is, there's no easy answer to that question. And I've had, to, I've had to tell people several times where this is not an, it's an easy question to ask, but it is not an easy question to answer. How can we look at the world and what we as human beings do to each other and what the world does to us and does to people who are hurting? How can we say that that's good and that, that, that evil is what God wants? Well, ultimately, the Christian faith as a whole, what we believe as Christians, what has been revealed by God as a whole, answers this question. So it's not an easy answer. It's not a one or two sentence answer that we would like that would be satisfying. It would be nice to be able to give you a, here's the three by five card answer to evil. You keep this card on you and when someone asks you why does God allow evil, this card will answer for you. Sorry that answer doesn't exist. But all of our faith does answer it. Because if creation is moving towards perfection and we are participating in that moving towards perfection, we have been given the will to choose whether or not to participate in that. Do we move creation by our actions towards that perfection that God wants for us? Or do we work against that? Or to put this question much simpler, do we choose to do what God wants us to do, to do what is good, or do we choose to fight against God and do things that hurt others and maybe put our focus on ourselves and not on others? In other words, do an act that is evil. We make that choice. Evil exists because we choose good or evil. We choose to be the ones to help others or hurt others. And this is where moral evil comes into the world is when we make that choice to commit an act of evil. Not God. God is not the cause of moral evil in the world. He did not want moral evil in the world, but he permits it. And as the Catechism says in 311, he permits it, however, because he respects the freedom of his creatures and mysteriously knows how to derive good from it. This is where that people will say God permits evil so that good may come of it. And that is arguably one of the most unsatisfying answers I have ever heard. It is absolutely 100% the truth. 
but it is also absolutely 100% not going to make anyone feel good. You know, no one's going to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm glad that my, my parent died or, you know, these people got killed over on war because good can come from it. No, people aren't going aren't gonna to say that. Most likely, we will not know the good that God brings from the evil we see, at least not here on earth, not during our lifetimes. Sometimes we can see that. Sometimes we can see that. But sometimes what we see also is further evil coming from people's decisions based on that evil that they saw. You know, we can look at uh, 9-11, for example, when the towers were hit and when the Pentagon was hit. There was a good that came out of it. People came back to their faith. Many, many people, for a short time, came back to their faith. They came back to God. But eventually they faded away, just as humans do. But we can also see much evil that came out on 9-11. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The number of people who were killed over there. You know, the, the attacks on others. There was good, but there was also evil. And a lot of times it's easy for us to focus on that evil. And it's really hard to see that good, especially when that good isn't as apparent as the evil itself was. But we know that God does bring good out of evil. A couple of examples the Catechism talks about. The patriarch Joseph. So we know, you know the story of the Israelites. They're in the promised land. And he has these sons. And one of them is Joseph. The Joseph is the youngest, or almost youngest. He's the most beloved. And so he's the spoiled one, to put it frankly. I mean, he kind of gets kind of gets all the, 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 the blessings from the father, and everybody, all the other sons are sent off to work. And Joseph is sent to his brothers, who are jealous, very jealous, murderously jealous. They want to kill, some of them want to kill him when they see him coming. And instead, they sell him off to slavery. Well, he ends up in Egypt, and out of that evil of their, their brother selling him to slavery and him being put in Egypt... He ends up saving the Israelite people. He ends up saving his family because he brought, they were able to come to Egypt during a, a strong famine and Egypt had been stockpiling food under Joseph's watch. So we, we can see, that's one of those cases where you can see that good that comes out of that evil. But that was, you could imagine, decades between when he was sold into slavery and when his family came to Egypt? Because his brothers didn't recognize him until he identified who he was. So you could imagine it would have been many years. But good came out of that evil. The big one, of course, is the death of our Lord. As I said, our Lord's death on the cross, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, dying on the cross is the worst evil that has ever occurred in the history of humanity and will ever occur, occur in creation. Nothing else compares to that. God himself became one of us, and we killed him. You can't get much worse than that. Because you can't. You can't get worse than that. And yet, what came out of that death? Salvation. The kingdom of heaven. The fact that we could go to heaven. That if we follow our Lord, we follow his teachings, we could have the kingdom of heaven. Which is the greatest good 
that has ever occurred in the history of humanity and will ever occur until the day we show up at the pearly gates to be judged. That is the extreme example of good coming out of evil. But as St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans 8.28, we know that in everything God works for good for those who love him. Ultimately, the answer to evil will only be revealed to us in, the, in its fullness when we are in facing God. That is why the, the answers we give here on earth are so unsatisfactory. Why no one will be satisfied by them. Because we cannot give the full, full answer. It will be revealed to us when we enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is when we will understand. And so finally, for our last section here real quick, Talk about what it means that God created the heavens and the earth. God created heaven and earth. And it's interesting, in, in the Catechism, of course, there are, there are three editions that have come out, three versions, if you will, that will come out. The first two versions in the Catechism says, God created all that is seen and unseen. Now, you'll remember up until about 11 years ago, that's how we said the Nicene Creed that God created everything that is seen and unseen. And so the first two versions of the Catechism, if you've got the, the, the first edition, if you've got the green-backed one like I have, yeah, the, perp, the, the gray one or the white one or the green one like I have, that says seen and unseen. You look in the blue one and it says visible and invisible. It's been updated for the new translation of the Mass. But that's what we're saying. And, and this isn't... Someone, when I... Did this last, I, because we missed Mass last week, I gave this class in Fort Shaw instead of doing it the other way around. Because usually what I do is Tuesday I, t I, I give this talk here, Wednesday I give the talk there. Well, we didn't have it here, so I gave it there. And someone asked, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between seen and unseen, invisible and invisible? Seen and unseen means you just can't see it right now. Not that it's not seeable. I can't see my pickup truck parked out there. Just right out that wall. But I can't see it. But I go out the front door, I'll see it. It's unseen to me right now, but then it'll be seen by me. Visible and invisible means able to be, or able, able to be sensed. Able to be grasped by our senses at all. And invisible means not able to be grasped by our senses. Heaven is invisible. While we are here on earth, barring a, a, a miracle from God, we cannot see heaven. We cannot see the saints and angels who surround us when we're at Mass. I love that image of if we really could see the heavenly realm. When we're sitting there at Mass, that room would be bursting literally out the roof. There are paintings you can see where Mass is being celebrated and the people are in the pews and the priest is at the altar and there's no ceiling, just the saints and the angels. That's what the Mass is like. That when the priest holds up that host, we would see the rays of God's mercy and love shining from the host like we see on the image of the Divine Mercy. You know, we have that, that picture of Divine Mercy where the host, or where the, coming from our Lord's heart, are the red and white rays of light. We would see that from the host. 
shining on each of us as the priest elevates the host. But we can't see that. It's invisible to us. We are unable to see it. It will be visible to us one day, but not right now. Ultimately, what it's saying is everything that God created, even those things that we cannot experience or know in this life, we cannot see, we cannot touch, you know, the heavens and the earth. And the word heaven is one of those, word heaven or the heavens, or one of those that we use in a couple of different contexts. You know, there's, there's one sense of heaven where we talk about the firmament. You'll see in the Bible the firmament. That's the sky. That's like saying, you know, oh yeah, you get on a plane and we flew through the heavens from here to Denver or wherever. We flew through the heavens. We flew through the sky. You know, right now up at, up at the International Space Station, there are men and women who are flying through the heavens around our planet. This is, you know, cre- this is the earthly sense of heaven, of you know, anything above the ground, basically. The sky and the, between the stars and so on. The firmament. The other way that we use heaven, and the way that we're using heaven here, in this context, is where God is. The kingdom of heaven. This sense of something that's not a literal place in physical creation. There was some controversy when John Paul II kind of tried to explain this and tried to explain it in a way of another... It almost The way he tried to explain it almost sounded like another universe or another reality or something like that. Ultimately, this heaven that we are talking about is where God is. That eternity that God is in, where all the saints and the angels exist. It's that glory of God that we will exist in, in the next life. It's that thing that we, if we could see the saints and angels in heaven instead of the ceiling, that's what we would be seeing. You know, is, is that existence beyond this physical realm, the spiritual realm, if you will. And so, in that heaven and the earth, of course, God, God created us here on earth. God created us to love him. And he also created angels in the heavenly realm. When we talk about the term angel, that's not a name for beings like we talk about us being human. We say we're human. I'm this particular human. I'm that particular human. Angels aren't like that. The name angel isn't a descriptor of the being. It's a descriptor of their job, their office, their purpose. It'd be like if my name was priest or pastor or father. That's my office. It's not a particular identifier of me. It's the office that I hold. You know, in some ways, we see that even in governments or whatever, where they will call someone by the office they hold. You know, speaker of the house or Duke of this, or Earl of that, over in England. And they will call them by the, the location they're at. You know, so it's, it's not disrespectful to go up to the President of the United States and, and call him President. 
things like that. So that, that's what the term angel means. It is a office, and that office is as a servant and messenger of God. To be an angel is to serve and be a messenger for God. So these beings that we call angels, they serve God and they, they bring messages to and from God. They are messengers to us. They are messengers to God. And they were created through and for our Lord. All things were created through Him, but they were also created for Him for His purposes. And they are purely spiritual beings. Angels do not have physical nature. They do not have flesh. Now they can take on the appearance of having flesh, of having a physical nature. We see that in the scriptures. We see that in the book of Tobit. We see that when, our, when, uh, when the, the archangel appeared to Our Lady. We see that when the angel appeared to John in the book of Revelation. They took on appearance, even in like the book of Tobit, where they actually ate. But they are not physical beings. They are purely spiritual beings who serve God. And they have participated in the history of salvation. Again, as I said, we see him in the scriptures, either as a messenger of salvation, so as someone who came to bring a message, or to help serve God's divine plan, to move along God's divine plan, if you will. And so in paragraph 332, the Catechism says, they closed the earthly paradise, protected Lot, save Hagar and her child, stayed Abraham's hand, communicated the law by their ministry, led the people of God, announced births and callings, and assisted the prophets. And most importantly, they proclaimed the coming of our Lord. First proclaimed it to Our Lady, asking her if she would become the mother of the Son of God. And then proclaimed to the shepherds, that our Lord had been born. And then throughout his life, they assisted his ministry by protecting and serving him. We see this during the temptations. In fact, the devil points this out in the three temptations of our Lord. Oh, just throw yourself off the temple cliff. You'll be fine. The angels will catch you. You know, that was their purpose was to protect him. And then, of course, it says that after he resisted those temptations. The angels came and ministered to him. They gave him what he needed. They protected him. They served him. And we are protected by the angels as well. We each have a guardian angel. We each have one of these spiritual beings that exists solely for the purpose of protecting each of us. And we each have our own guardian angel. The guardian angels aren't reused. It's not like my guardian angel was the guardian angel of a person a hundred years ago, who died a hundred years ago, and your guardian angel was no. A guardian angel was created for each and every one of us at the beginning of creation, and only protects us once we have gone, hopefully to heaven. That guardian angel no longer does not go to another person. We will spend eternity rejoicing with our guardian angels. Now, one thing that, that 
sometimes people will do is, oh, well, I like to name my angel. And I know a lot of people have fallen into this. Don't do it. Don't do it. First of all, who are we to name these beings that are created by God? They're not dogs. They're not dogs that we name. In many ways, they are greater than us. That was the great temptation of Satan, of Lucifer. Was that he, it was revealed to the angels that we would be placed over them. And again, it says that in the scriptures, that one day we will judge the angels. Us fallible, fleshy, corporeal beings, physical beings, will judge the pure spiritual angels. And some of the angels couldn't take that, and they became the fallen angels. But we are not above the angels yet, not here on earth. And so we shouldn't be naming them. Their name is angel. Messenger. Servant. You know. And there have actually been cases where someone thought they were talking to their guardian angel. And it turned out it was a demon tricking them. It has actually, it has actually happened. And there are books, popular books out there, that talk about these angels that have appeared to these people. And it's new agey, and it's demonic. Our guardian angels' names are angel. That's their names. Because they are not named as an individual. They are named by who, or who they serve and what they do. Angel. So, I, just, I wanted to mention that because, again, there, 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 are, there are many who've read these books or they've heard these messages of, oh yes, I, I prayed and asked my guardian angel to give me his or her name and it was revealed to me. That's not the... the if, if your guardian angel reveal, revealed his or her name, the name you would hear is, it's angel. That's it. Because I exist for the glory of God. Not to be named. But when we get into heaven... We will be joining these angels in praising God. And we do here on earth in a way. What do we say at Mass right before the Eucharistic prayer? Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Those words are in the scriptures because they came from the lips of the angels praising God. Those are the words that we will use to praise God for all eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. So finally, we've talked about now the heavens, especially the angels. Now finally we get to the visible world. And there, as I said, there is nothing exists that does not owe existence, that does not exist without God. Nothing. Everything exists because God created it. And it began when he spoke that word. And all of creation came into existence out of nothingness. And we know that all of creation is good and that each creature, again, remember creature, I'm, I'm talking about not just animals, but all creation, all things that exist, ex have their own particular goodness and perfection. What I mean by that is 
Everything is good because it is a part of creation or has its way that it is good. That's a better way to put it. Has its way that it is good. A door is good when it lets you in and out of a room or locks people out that you don't want in and out of a room. A table is good when you can use it for playing cards or eating on it or sitting in a class. You know, table isn't good when it's broken, when it doesn't do that. It doesn't fulfill its goodness, its perfection. And we know that it, all creation is good because God tells us. In that first chapter of Genesis, after everything that God created, every day, it fin the day finishes up with, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And this is why we must respect creation. I talked earlier about that, how we need to be looking at ways that we can better respect creation. Because it's good. It was created by God for us. And we must not abuse what God has given us, the gift that God has given us. <coughs> One thing that God did is he created us interdependent on each other. We do not stand alone. God wills that we have community. God wills that we work together. But that's not just us as human beings. That's all creation. All of creation depends on other parts of creation. And so we can look at, yes, you know, this is an example of that where we come together as a community. We come together as independent creatures that are dependent on each other. But we can also look at, we are dependent on the plants in the ground. We are dependent on animals. We are dependent on the creature of air to live. Nobody would live without oxygen. No human being will ever exist without oxygen. We are dependent on that. We are dependent on the sun, you know, and so on and so on. All of the, cre all of cre all of the world, all of the universe is dependent on each other, on all the creatures. And that is part of the beauty of the universe. You know, we look at the universe and we look at all this interdependence and we look at what God has created and we find it beautiful. I mean, who, who doesn't look at the mountains out here and see that beauty in what God has sculpted? And yes, it's sculpted through the workings of the wind and the water and the ice and snow and rain and our handiwork as we carve through the mountains and so on. But it's beautiful because it comes from God. It fulfills God's plan for creation. Now, when we talk about these creatures, it goes from, there's a hierarchy. From least perfect to most perfect. You know, and a lot of it is things like, you know, a rock is obviously less perfect than something that grows. And something that grows is obviously less perfect than something like an animal that has mobility, and so on. I mean, this is a very simple explanation of this, a very simple overview of this. And the summit of that creation is us, is humanity. That's where I said, all of creation was created for us. We are the pinnacle, the summit of God's creative work. It was all created for us. And it is all oriented to him. 
All of creation was created by him, and all of creation, including us, is for him, oriented to him, to his glory. And that is why we have the Sabbath, the day of rest. Again, looking at that first chapter of Genesis, six days he worked, on the seventh day he rested. Now, do you really think God needed to take a nap? No. He did it for us to show us, first of all, the need for rest, but most importantly, for a day to worship and adore Him. That all of creation is ordered to that worship and adoration. He finished up with that day of adoring Him. Now, when we talk about the Sabbath as Christians, it's a little bit different than how the Jews saw it. The Jews, of course, saw it as the seventh day, what we today call Saturday, what our calendars today call Saturday. However, by our Lord coming, He fulfilled the work of creation. He fulfilled the work of the Sabbath. And so now we have the eighth day. This eighth day, because we are still on a seven-day calendar, is Sunday. It wraps around. Now, we can't get too literal about this. You know, you know someone can sit there and go, well, but that doesn't make sense because Sunday is the first day. How is it also the eighth day? And is it first, eighth, first, eighth? No, no, don't. That's overthinking it. The idea is with our Lord coming and dying and rising again, creation is fulfilled the Sabbath is fulfilled, and it is fulfilled on the Lord's day, which is Sunday. And that is the day that we celebrate and worship and adore our Lord for that redemption. So that is why it is so important that we take time on Sundays, the Lord's day, for worship. And that's something that's very difficult for people to do because they don't recognize that the reason why we have a day of rest is that we might use it for God's glory, just as we might use all for God's glory. And why we must not let anything keep us from that worship because all of it is geared towards that Lord's day. And so that finishes this section. Any questions or comments about any of it? Yeah, I, I forgot to mention that. Thank you. Um, you know, there, there are certain angels that have been given name, but notice that these names are actually descriptive. St. Michael, who is like God. Power. He's, you know, he's always pictured with the sword. He's God's champion, God's conqueror. And the question is not that his, or his power, that question asks, who is like God, is to show that his power as the guardian, you know, St. Michael the archangel defend us in battle, comes from God. It's not something that comes from St. Michael himself. Raphael, or Raphael, or however you pronounce it, you know, some people pronounce it differently, but St. Raphael, he is the one who heals. And he's God's healer is what that means. Gabriel is the one that came to Our Lady. I'm trying to remember now. It's not God's messenger, but it, 
But it's, you know, it's the same idea, you know, these, hmm? The amount of things. Yeah, yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't remember exactly. There, there's like another two or three word phrase that generally is used, but the same idea. So these names, again, are not individual names. These are names of their jobs, their office. Um, so they call them archangels? Yeah, there's, there's, there's the, rank, the nine ranks of the angels, and the archangels are the highest. You know, you've got, it, it, there's some of the prefaces in the Mass where you talk about, you know, the virtues and the, and the, the choir of angels and all these different levels, dominions. These are all different levels of angels. Seraphim and cherubim are others, and archangels are the top of that. Okay. You know, Lucifer was the, the highest of the high. He was, was the he top angel. angel. Yes. Matter of fact, he was the top of the archangels. But in his pride, he fell. And so Gabriel or uh, Michael took over that position, if you will. Um, but yeah, so there's, the angels have these different structures, and, and each struck each position of angels, each level of angels, has different office, different responsibility, different authority, if you will, um, from God. So that's, that's why some are named, is because of the office they're filling. Now again, not because that particular angel is actually Michael, it's who is like God. You know, it's that he is the, the, the champion of God. Things like that. Anything else? You know, that sounds to me like man trying to make sense of something. Mm-hmm. But not, it's not. Some of it is. That's, that's where I talk about, you know, like the trying to name the angels and things like that. that that's, that's, I think that's a lot of what it, it really comes from, is just trying to better understand the angels. And unfortunately, sometimes when we try to understand things, we get it wrong. Yeah. You know, that's just our... But some of it, a lot of this, you know, again, the choirs, the ranks of angels and so on, are, have been revealed. That is revelation. We'll, I, there's, you know, again, we're, we're at the beginning of the catechism, a lot of this stuff gets fleshed out as we go further and further and further in. So this stuff get, will get talked about eventually. You know, we're, we're scratching the surface right now. We're just starting to, to really explore. So, but yeah, you're, you're right. Part of it is trying to figure out what God has done, and part of it is what he has actually revealed to us. So, Yeah, I, I, have, you know, like they say that certain people are chosen to serve God and or, yeah, I don't know. It's they, they, you know, they they believe in called predestination. That from the moment we are created, our end is set, basically. And so there are those who are predestined to go to heaven. There are those who are predestined to go to hell. And that's just how it goes. And it's, it's an extreme of, you know, how it's an extreme look at, of, of God's grace, you know, that, that we are saved by God's grace. And that's something we believe 100%, that we cannot be saved on our own. We participate in that salvation, but that's very different than saying that we work our way to heaven, you know. Um, they take the opposite extreme, that we can do absolutely nothing to be saved. 
Whether you are in the church constantly or you never set foot in the church, if your purpose is to go to heaven, you will go to heaven. You know, and so what I think what they're saying there is not so much that those who are called by God to serve, let's say as a minister or, or an evangelist or something like that, although if you really think about it, there's really no need for evangelists. Because um, if you're going to go to heaven, it doesn't matter if someone told you or not. But it, it, that's just kind of one of those asides where it's like the logic doesn't fit. But uh, they're not talking about angels, you know, messengers in the sense of angelic beings. They're talking about human beings who are filling that role, which we do recognize as Catholics. I mean, that's one of the roles of the ministerial priesthood is to be, in, a, in that sense, an angel, a messenger and a servant of God but not an angelic being, not a, you know, you know, I'm not going to sprout wings and have a halo, you know, L- Lord knows it's probably more likely the other way, but <laughs> some days, but it, it, you know, and all of us as Christians have that role too. We are called to be messengers and servants of God, but it doesn't mean, you know, was it Clarence and, and a wonderful life? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. <laughs> No. No. <laughs> so can I, can I answer your question? Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're using that, that, that term or that sense in a different way, which is not altogether wrong. It's just Calvinism in general is kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up then with the prayer. And again, we'll in, invoke our, the Holy Trinity. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.